For many of us, watching the original animated version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas by Dr. Seuss has become a heartwarming Christian, uh, Christmas tradition, right? Um, and most of us will recall that uh, the Grinch hated Christmas with all of the, the noise and, and the feasting and the presents and the singing. And so he decided he's going he's gonna to put an end to it. He's going to stop Christmas from coming by going down there and stealing their presents and their food and all their decorations. And he does that, and if you recall, he, poor little dog, takes the stuff all the way up the mountain, and he, he's up there on the, the top peak of this mountain, and he thinks to himself, okay, now they're going to wake up, and I'm going to hear sadness and sorrow, right? Crying and wailing because they don't have their presents, they don't have their food. And instead, what he hears is, is joy, cheerful singing. And he stops and he thinks to himself, huh, I guess Christmas doesn't come from a store. And at that moment, his heart is transformed. It grows seven sizes, right? And he, uh, he manages to save the, the sleigh with all of their stuff on it from plummeting down the mountain. And he, he goes down and he returns all their things. And, uh, and not just that, but uh, they welcome him and he joins them for a feast and, and goes from being their enemy to being their friend, right? So this morning in our Advent reading from Isaiah 9, you know, we recall that this, this Messiah, who we know to be Jesus of Nazareth, was foretold to be the Prince of Peace. And we're going to look at a passage uh, in just a moment uh, from the Christmas story, if you will, from Luke chapter 2. Um, where the heavenly host praise God and speak of peace on earth. And so, as we, we look at this passage and a few others, we need to ask ourselves, you know, what is this peace that we're told that Jesus will usher in? Is it, is it like the peace that uh, the Grinch came to have with the Who's of Whoville? Or is it something different? And how do, we, how do we attain this peace? How do we get it? So that's some of what we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to begin by taking a look at the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. That will cause great joy for all people. 
Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, that phrase, peace on earth, is translated a number of different ways. Essentially, there's basically four different ways English versions uh, translate that. One has to do with a, a textual variant, and three simply you know, related to you know, their way of understanding the context or, or maybe their theology. But I'll just give you four that, that capture the differences, right? So the King James Version for the 21st century reads, On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So just kind of a blanket statement, the idea that, that God is going to shower upon everyone on this earth um, peace. And, and presumably his goodwill towards people. The complete Jewish Bible says this, on earth, peace among people of goodwill. So there we have this idea that, that God will bestow peace upon people who are, have goodwill, who are already good people, perhaps. Uh, the English Standard Version says this, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, with whom God is pleased. And that could, doesn't tell us exactly why you know, God is pleased with them. But another version uh, probably clarifies what most of us, how most of us would read it. Uh, the contemporary English version says this, on earth, uh, peace to everyone who pleases God. So there you get the idea that if, if we're doing something that's pleasing to God, then we'll have peace. And then the NIV says this, on earth, Peace to those on whom his favor rests. There we see it a little bit different with the idea that it's, it's about divine grace and, and, and God's favor. And uh, that, that seems to be the um, reason um, for peace, right? And, and those who have peace are those upon whom his favor rests. So which is it, right? Um, well, I would just say this, that if... If we can't get clarity from the immediate context, the, the next thing that we want to do is look at the surrounding context. We want to look at what the Bible has to say about a topic. You know, if, again, if we can't be clear about the meaning of a word or a phrase or a doctrine, we want to look elsewhere. And so that's exactly what we want to do this morning. And we want to try to understand, like, what exactly is this peace that Jesus is, is said to be ushering in, right? He's the Prince of Peace, right? And we're told that in relation to his birth, that there's going to be peace on earth. So what is that peace? And, and, and how can we have it? Or how can we fully have it? I think that's pretty important for us to know. So I'll start off by saying this, that in Scripture, it talks essentially about three different kinds of peace. Peace among human beings. Peace between humans and God. And then it also talks about a type of, of inner peace that we might feel or experience. So, of course, which is it? 
So to start, is Jesus' first coming meant to bring peace among humans? Fair question. Well, if we look at Scripture specifically, uh, and we won't turn there, but in in the book of Matthew, um, on the Olivet Discourse, it's the night before Jesus was crucified. He was teaching his his disciples, and he said this, that that there's going to be wars and, and rumors of wars, that nation will rise up against nation. Now, most of us are aware of of the atrocities committed by Hamas and the conflict going on with Israel. We're, we're probably still aware of, uh, you know, the war going on in Ukraine and, and their battle for their, their survival and their freedom. But most of us are probably not aware that there's at least 32 countries currently uh, at war, with war and conflict, including things like terrorist insurgencies, civil wars, ethnic cleansings, and more. So I think it's safe to say that world peace is out, at least until Christ's return. Well, maybe this peace on earth means that at least Christians will have peace with others. Might mean that. Um, But here again, Jesus said something that brings some clarity on the issue And for that, I'm going to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 10. And Jesus was getting ready to send his 12 closest disciples out to preach the good news of the kingdom. And this is part of what he said to prepare them. Verse 21, he said, Brother will betray brother to the death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. And then he went on, verse 34, and said this, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So here we have to ask ourselves, what's going on? I mean, isn't Jesus, we're told, it came to bring peace. And then he's saying, don't think that I came to bring peace. So as tip, tip, Jesus typically does, he's, you know, he's using some hyperbole here, but he's making a point. It's not that he wants us to hate our, the members of our family, right? It, it's, it's not saying that. And it's not saying that he, he, he craves or desires or his whole point is to, to just bring about division, right? But I, hopefully it's very clear in the context that he's talking about of of persecution, that our love and allegiance for Jesus needs to be supreme. That it has to be greater than our love for even our own family members. And if that's the case, oftentimes there's going to be persecution, even to the point at times of bloodshed, even within our own families. I get... Updates and prayer requests 
from about five different organizations that serve the persecuted church every week. And I just can't tell you how often I see that type of persecution come. Yeah, sometimes it's, it's from, you know, villagers or, or others outside of the family, but, but oftentimes it's within the family. Um, especially with Islam. Someone converts, they refuse to convert back, and they're, they're, they're cast out, they're beaten, oftentimes cast out, stripped naked. Sometimes they're killed by members of their own family or reported to the authorities and, and persecuted by, by people in their own family. Globally, more than 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith in 76 different countries. In the worst 50 countries alone, 312 million Christians now face very high or extreme levels of persecution. More specifically, in the last year, 5,621 Christians that we know of were killed for their faith. More than 2,000 churches and church buildings were attacked, looted, or forcibly closed, often burnt to the ground. And around 140,000 Christians were displaced from their home or country for faith-based reasons. So while living a godly life and loving even our enemies will glorify God and, and in some instances promote peaceful relationships and provide opportunities to share the gospel, this same faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ will oftentimes also trigger persecution. So I think it's safe to say that Jesus didn't come to bring complete peace between Christians and others, particularly outside of or outside of the faith. So if all that Jesus has done for us since his first coming doesn't bring peace among humans, or at least not primarily. What about peace with God? And if he does bring humans into peace with God, do all people enjoy this peace? Or perhaps at least those who were already doing something that was pleasing to God. Maybe that's what it's saying. So numerous places in the Bible talk about this. Um, but we're going to look at just one. Essentially what we're going to do is we're going to pick up where Steve left off last week in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, a big part of the context is suffering. And really chapters 5 through 8 are, are, are work together as a unit, and he's going to talk about some different things. But, but the idea is that, you know, maybe there's some doubts, there's going to be some questioning. You know, maybe, you know, maybe we're wrong about who, who Jesus is and and, you know, how can we be sure about that? Because, hey, we thought that, you know, if we were followers of Jesus, everything would be great, man. Just kind of like maybe the, the idea of, uh, you know, the old covenant, right? 
if they were, if Israel was going to be faithful to, to Yahweh in the Old Covenant, they would experience peace and prosperity and all that. And yet, here they are, um, you know, facing suffering. And so here's at least part of what Paul had to say on this subject. And I'll, I'll just start out at least at the beginning, a little bit of repeat where we started off last week. But Paul wrote this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Pick it up at verse 6, he says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are you you tracking what he's saying? Someone might sacrificially, you know, give up their life for someone who is good and righteous, but no one's going to, who's going to give up their life sacrificially for someone who's an enemy, who's, who's sinful, who's, who's horrible, who rejects them. And isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Since we have now been justified by his blood, past tense, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, future tense? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, we were, we were brought into a, a relationship of, of peace when we were his enemies, how much more, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? So, clearly here, Paul is talking about peace with God. A peace with God that comes through Jesus and all that he did for us through his, his life and, and death and, and resurrection and all that he's doing uh, after his ascension, ruling and reigning in heaven. And all that he does in his, his sovereign grace in human hearts to take hearts that were hard, that hearts that were disbelieving and stubborn and obstinate and rebellious and, 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 and rejecting of God and to bring us a new life, a new heart, such that our hearts are now soft and believing and yielding and moldable and submissive and obedient, trusting. It should be evident that the Prince of Peace came primarily to bring peace with God, to reconcile us to him, to transform us into his likeness, ultimately restoring us into the image of God which, which we were created and which was marred because of the fall. Obviously, that won't be complete until Christ returns. We've got to be with him. 
but it's in process and we're being changed if we're in Christ. Now, a byproduct of that reconciliation with God and the redeeming work of Christ is peace with others, at least in many cases, particularly among Christians. One passage that I think captures the, uh, the reason behind this well is in uh, Galatians chapter 5. Paul writes that the, the acts of the flesh, so by his term flesh, he's talking about our, our humanity, our, our fallen humanity that has, a, a, again, that hardened heart, sinful kind of nature. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the results, the the work that the Holy Spirit produces within one who has been redeemed and has a, a transformed heart is this. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What a contrast between those two lists, right? Vice to virtues. So it should be evident right there then that if, if we truly are in Christ and we have new life, new birth, and a transformed heart, Again, just to be clear, you know, I get it, you know, the depiction in, in the Grinch, you know, he saw the picture of his heart growing bigger. But, you know, of course, in Scripture, when we talk about heart, we're not talking about the organ that pumps our blood, right? The closest might be to say our mind. You know, sometimes people think just intellect, but it's that inner part of who we are that involves our, our, our thinking our beliefs, our values, our desires, our allegiance, our will, our emotions, all of that. And what God is doing in us to change us, to make us to be more like Jesus in in how we think and what we think and what we say and what we do, of course, we're going to be much more at peace with others, right? At least as it depends on us, especially within the church, right? Because we do things that are very unnatural, like love our enemies, forgive those who hurt us, repay evil with good, and so forth. So sure, in many cases, Peace with others is a byproduct. And inner peace, that calm, content mind that's free from fear and and worry and anxiety is another byproduct of heart transformation. And for this, I'll just take a quick look at uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse that 
a lot of us are pretty familiar with. Paul wrote, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Presumably from anxiety, right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, I've done that, and it just doesn't work. I've prayed about it, and I, I just, it doesn't work. I, I just still am anxious. I've got to tell you that there's some things that are implied in what Paul wrote there. The idea that I, that I believe a God exists isn't, isn't going to get it. But if I'm confident about some basic truths of who God is and how he operates, and, and if I have <laughs> submitted my life to Jesus Christ and I love him, um, it all changes. Because Scripture teaches us that, that God is all-knowing and all-good. He's all-knowing and all-wise. He's perfect in, in love and goodness. He's sovereign, and he's in control of this world that he created. And if we would have went a little bit further on in, in, in Romans in chapter 8, which again was that same context, talking about suffering, Paul went on to teach us that it, for those who are followers of Jesus, who are, are children of God by faith, right? Those who love him are called according to his purpose. That in all things, God is at work for our good. All things. And you may say, well, wait, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You were just talking about persecution and, and all of these different things going on. I just don't get it. It makes no sense. If, if these things were true, if God was really at work for my good, if, if God was really truly all-knowing and, and wise and loving and good and sovereign control, you know, these, these bad things wouldn't happen. All this horrible stuff wouldn't happen to me. But I would say this, that the next verse makes it really clear that the greatest good in God's sight is that we're conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And remember, God looks at things from an eternal perspective. Oftentimes, the things that matter most to us right now, a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, will mean nothing. We'll be like, how in the world, why in the world was I even concerned about that? And sadly, probably some of the things that we're not even the least bit concerned about or not concerned enough will matter a lot then. And we'll probably look back and go, I wish I would have focused more on this or spent more time on this or more money on that. So God looks at things from an eternal perspective. But in the end, what I'm saying is this. Do we really trust that based on, on, on what, what Paul taught and what we know of God, do we really believe that God desires our greatest good, that he knows what that is, and he knows how to bring it about, and that nobody can thwart him? Nobody can get in his way. God can work in, and works, he works in every situation to orchestrate, in the end, um, things according to his plan. 
this could be a whole sermon, but I'll just give one example. So think about the crucifixion. You have wicked people, religious leaders, especially of Jerusalem, who hated Jesus, who saw him as a threat, called him a blasphemer, were, were envious because he was stealing their following. And they did everything they could do to have him executed. And they achieved exactly what they wanted. They, they accomplished their goal. And of course, they're going to have to stand and give account for that one day. But as Scripture teaches us, you know, very clearly, that that was exactly what Jesus came to do, right? To give his life as a ransom for the many. That was God's plan from before the creation of the world. It wasn't that they had Jesus executed and God's going like, oh man, what do I do now? Like plan B, plan B, what do I get? Oh man. Rather, God, as only he can do, worked through wicked and malicious people to accomplish exactly what he wanted to do for our good. He did the same thing with Joseph and does the same thing in our lives. And I got to say that if I, if, I feel, if I feel anxiety, if I feel a lack of contentment or, or inner peace, the first thing I need to do, and, and I do regularly, is I stop and ask myself, what do I believe to be true about God? Are these things true? And you know what? If I still feel anxious about something, it's, it's a pretty good indicator that there's an idol in my life that has to go. And once I do that, and once I repent, I'm at peace. Now think about it. If I say, if I pray to God, as Paul talked about, and then I say, Lord, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will. If I mean that, am I really going to be worried that God's will might be done in my life? Really? <laughs> of course not. So, kind of wrap this up. How the Grinch stole Christmas gets a few things right. Christmas doesn't come from a store. And it is about peace and heart change. But it also gets a few things very wrong. The peace of Christmas is the gracious gift of God to his enemies. through Christ's sacrificial and atoning death on the cross and resurrection and through God's regenerating work that transforms hard hearts. Goodwill and the Christmas spirit, if you will, cheer and, and singing and all of that alone will not transform the heart of a Grinch or anyone else for that matter. Rather, it's, it's a divine work centered on Jesus Christ. So Advent, or the first Advent at least, the first coming of Jesus, is about peace. But not the end of all hatred and hostility on the earth. That awaits the second Advent. Jesus' second coming, 
when he returns to earth and will destroy all the enemies of God. Rather, Advent is about peace with God that comes through Jesus Christ and the complete peace that all creation will enjoy when he returns. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are so grateful for your love, for your grace, for your mercy, that in spite of the fact that we are wicked people, who were wicked people who uh, rejected you and out of disbelief and stubbornness and hard-heartedness, that even for us, Jesus died. And so we're just grateful for that. And we pray for your, your grace also at work now in our hearts that any of us who have not yet come to, to fully believe and trust our life to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that we would. And pray that we would continue to grow in faith. That we would love what you love and hate what you hate. That we would value and desire what you desire and value. And that ultimately we would, for our part, be people of peace. But not to the extent of hiding our faith to avoid persecution. But indeed, help us to love our enemies and repay evil with good. And as we yield our lives to you, and as our confidence in you grows, that you indeed are in control of this world, that nothing can happen that you do not cause or allow that we would be people that would be filled with an inner peace, that we would be content in who we are and what you've done for us, except only uh, in, our, in our spiritual growth and maturity. In that, may we always long and desire to continue to grow. Do this in and through us, we pray that you would do it for your glory and for our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.